0: Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds Comic Podcast, Episode 71. I'm Carissa, and I'm joined by some other nerds, Rory. And Ryan. Hello. Together, we take on this week's comics. Each week, we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now and go read your week's books. Then, come on back. Each week, one of us picks their favorite book, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd, and this week, the pick of the week goes to Star Our Lord number six. Our companion song is Ripple by the Grateful Dead because the reason why this was my pick is a very personal reason. And that personal reason ties in very strongly my personal life with this particular song. But in particular, there's a line in this song about if you must lead, you must follow and we'll help you find your way home. And I think it really hits into the key of what's happening. So take a listen. You choose to lead, must follow. But if
1: you fall, you fall alone If you should stand,
0: then who's to guide you? If I knew the way,
1: I would take you home Da-da-da-da
0: Star-Lord, number six, Marvel Comics, written by Chip Zdarsky, pencils by Chris Anka, inks by Chris Anka, and Waldo Wong, colors by Matthew Wilson. For Last We Left Off, at the end of issue five, Edmund Was Falling after a little entanglement with the black cat. We find out in this issue that Edmund unfortunately actually did not make. He crashed and fell down and died. We see Star-Lord and Edmund's son at the funeral. Star-Lord clearly is blaming himself and a lot of people are trying to reassure him. He also meets Edmund's ex-wife, his son's mom, and they all are basically saying, no, you did good for him. Thank you. He has this feeling that he could have done more.
2: I think that's a very common feeling when someone passes away.
0: It is. There are two reasons in particular why this was my pick of the week. I know a lot of people were expecting Secret Empire, and I'm sure we'll get to that when we cover it. But for me, there is one panel in particular, the one panel that stuck with me and just hit me like a bullet and like literally made me tear up. And it really helped me connect to the book. I think comics are a medium and everything is acquired by taste. And this spoke to me. That's why it was my pick of the week. It has, I'm just going to read that particular panel at this point where Daredevil gives the son a gift. The son didn't go to the will reading or anything. And Matt Murdock shows up and he gives him a gift and it ends up being the suit the silver suit and it doesn't fit him and he's laughing at that and besides that I think that is important and significant that Daredevil gave him the suit because I think it's showing that Daredevil's accepting that even bad guys can be redeemed where earlier in this series he was questioning like well he was an ex-criminal and I think that even Matt has learned some things but the line in the panel is like then you're back to real life and you're folding laundry and your father is dead and you're watching a movie and your father is dead it's hard to reconcile those things the ordinary mundane life and the violence and that hole that's left and every day and you need to go on some of you might not know I've talked about before my dad had recently died and yeah it's a a sucker punch you know you're there doing something mundane but you have that in the back of your head and it's just a brutal thought and those were just so perfectly worded that I could not escape this book and also on top of that it's surprising to me because chip is really known for like the yuck-yuck his humor is usually more on the silly side so when he brings in the feels but the second reason that I picked this book is there is an incredibly amazing and funny scene that you would expect from Chip that goes along between Wolverine and Peter Quill at Javelin's house. (laughs) Oh, I laughed my ass off. It is hilarious. They get together and basically Javelin thanking Peter for his help. That was nice of you, boy. You didn't need to send anyone to look out for me. But since you did, I know you're a good kid and covers all the fees that he had been trying to work off. But seriously, go back and read it. I don't want to ruin it for you, but read the interaction with Wolverine. Green Javelin, and Peter. It's the funniest Besides this part that made me cry. That was the second point that made me why this is my pick of that week. It's like, your robe's open, isn't it?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then there was other little humorous things that we've seen a lot in this series, like 8-Ball going, I'm working on trying to expand my powers, not just pool cues. Now I'm going to be like a real like kid's toy, a magic 8-Ball. I'm going to predict the future. But it seems to be affecting everyone, which actually leads into what's going to be the Star Lord annual people are having nightmares and in this book at one point we see a nightmare that peter had but overall i think there's a lot of good dialogue that's funny that we're used to with this series between like shocker and eight ball wolverine old man logan with Peter it's hilarious it's just classic it's up there and then just seeing the fallout of and Ming gone and that what kids have to deal with when they lose a parent it's hard and then we see how we wrap up Peter finding rock and then that's when he's zotted away by brand and I just love brand's reaction she's just so pissy and <laughs> like never don't talk to me and just (laughs) get off my planet (laughs) typical brand stuff and then there's this feeling and definition of what home is that this is not your home peter he's like well no i'll I'll put down my roots like it's like you're mixing up stationary and home and i thought that was really cool and it totally fits for that character and for peter and that's another reason why the song i thought fit but i'd love to hear what you guys think because i know my personal feelings and where it touched me is not going to be necessarily applicable to you
1: i think you hit the nail on the head really i mean this episode of star lord it's a combination of get that real emotional response from the death and and Peter like trying to deal with the old man's death plus of course the typical funny that we're used to it's like the mixture was just right so I was in love with this episode or actually I'm glad you picked it as a pick of the week actually because I I thought this is just fucking amazing
2: I really like this I wasn't such a big fan of the last issue of Star Lord I thought it lacked some of Chip's main strengths which is humor but what makes this book and I think we've all kind of talked touched on this really well, it is dealing with complex emotional issue and it's hitting all of the emotions that get wrapped around that. There are parts that are really funny, there are parts that are sad, there are parts that are just that moment where you just kind of have to laugh at the absurdity of life and how difficult it is to move on when that person isn't there anymore. And I think Chip is really, really, really growing as a writer. I mean, Chip has been a writer for a long time, not just in comics. So, I'm really seeing him honing his craft here, and this book nails every emotion you want it to nail. When it tries for that emotion, it nails it perfectly. When you have a book that has a lot of different tones going on, it can either be really jarring because it's not on one overall note, but this, because it's dealing with a very complex range of emotions that happen when someone dies, it's able to kind of take you through that arc, and each moment that's happening is perfectly within that emotional moment.
0: Oh, I'm glad to hear that you guys liked it. I'm giving it five is your robe open.
1: Oh, damn it. Okay, then since you took the one that I was going to do, I'm going to give it five Wolverine hugs.
2: I will give it... For do don't slut shame Wolverine yeah
0: that was pretty good <laughs> that was pretty funny
1: all right redneck redneck number one image comics written by Donny Cates pencils and inks by Lissandro Esseran colors by D Kunif so this is a new one that I picked up as we all joke about pretty much every week I have a obsession with Okie culture, I guess is the one. I don't know the politically right, correct way to say it. Redneck vampires, I mean, how could you go wrong with it? So what happens with this one is we have this family of vampires that live in Texas. They have this place off in the woods, kind of. And there's this older guy, and he's thinking to himself and kind of like narrating. And there's like this little girl vampire who's there who's like reading his mind and starts like talking to him. He's like, quit reading my thoughts. And they're talking about grandpa and stuff. It's like they basically have like a family unit. I don't think that it's an actual literal family. I think that they're all from like different created vampires and stuff like that. But they consider themselves family. And so there's three boys that are wanting to go for a night on the town. And he doesn't really want them to go.
0: Where are them going,
2: titty bar? <laughs> Some yeah. things never change.
1: They're going to a strip club. They're teenagers, man. They're only 60 years old. So <laughs> what happens is that the kids go to the titty bar. <laughs> And the man, he decides that he's going to go and keep an eye on him. They're worried that they're going to like kill somebody on accident and stuff like that. So he follows along with them. And once he gets to the strip club, they're out in the alleyway and they've been cornered by this gang of five or six guys. And one of them's got a gun. And so what happened is that I guess one of the guys thought that somebody's girlfriend was one of the dancers. So these guys are getting ready to start some shit and then the old man, older hillbilly vampire, he comes kicking in the door and tells him, hey, told you guys not to do any shit. Tells the guys, hey, they didn't mean anything by it. And he tells them now get there and he's getting ready to kick the shit out of these guys. Obviously he's pretty powerful because he basically kicks the door right off the fucking hinges. Seems like he's as old as basically when Texas was, was taken over or taken back from Spain. So he's the Old as the Alamo. I'm fucking up my history, aren't I?
2: Little bit, little bit.
1: Fuck, I don't know no history.
2: (laughs) Can't expect a meathead to know history.
1: That's why I'm into hillbilly books. So anyways, he's an older vampire. He's from around the time of the Alamo. He even says that he was there. So he's pretty powerful. And he's ready to basically kick the shit out of these guys. And then this guy shows up and tells everybody, hey, they're on their way. All of a sudden, everybody who's starting shit with the kids, this father Landry, basically they've got respect for him and they immediately change their opinions and walk away. Then the boys go and this father Landry says something along the lines of, uh, one of these days you'll wake up in the ashes of that home, Mr. Bowman and you and those boys will burn and he says just like their mother and he turns around and he was walking away before then he turns around and gives him this dirty ass look and next thing you know the next morning he's laying on the front porch all bloodied and looks like he's got bullet holes in him and stuff like that and he's woken up when the sun hits his hand it lights him up. Fire. One of the other vampires is like, What did you do? And he's like, What? What what are you talking about? And you see this is actually a really powerful image, I thought. One of the boys is hanging from the tree out front and the sunlight's hitting him, so he's just up in flames. Yeah. Yeah. Then he has to get him down. Obviously, there's gonna be a big war going on with this. And the thing that I actually liked about this is that Donnie Cates he wrote this letter in the back of it, kind of saying that dad grew up in a rough town in Texas and and had a lot of life or death type of situations and then kind of like sever himself from his family so that he could raise his kids normally so this is kind of like a reflection of that he's not telling the exact things but he's kind of like retelling his own family history in a, in a sense with this whole thing.
2: It's like the way that Buffy uses monsters to stand in for social problems or things that like teenagers go through. This is using the you have like evil in the blood and what do you have to be evil just because your family is and how hard is it to move past that?
1: Exactly I like this one a lot. I really like the story the story was good and it's quick you know this is a very quick read here but uh, the artwork at times I like it and at times I'm not so hot on it that was kind of like the disappointing thing
2: I'm not so crazy on the actual pencils and inks I mean it works for the story it seems to fit together I'm just not fond of it but I'm really impressed by the coloring in this book the coloring on this is excellent. Yes.
1: Super on point with the coloring. At times, it's better than others. You know, there's certain, some parts where it's like, oh, wow, they really got some good, like, they frame the scenes very well. But yeah, just not so hot on that one. <laughs> What'd you guys think?
0: The whole time while I was reading it, it felt like I was watching Vampire the Requiem game fan fiction into comic books. The Bloodline <laughs> overlocks versus the head of the local Lankea for the city. <laughs> the Overlocks are like a redneck. Blood line for gang girl i'm like whoa they got someone to draw it up for them that's nice the artwork for me it was really at first i'm like i hate it i can't stand it but then there's some panels that i really like i will give them credit the weird boss guy that they run into the alley with all his multiple chins the way he's drawn is just gross and disturbing you instantly dislike him he just looks like someone you'd hate so props to that and yeah the end is a very powerful image there is a couple shots of the guy like weird redneck fu manchu with the baseball cap where the shadows from the cap are blocking his face where all you see is like the stash in his eyes I think that's pretty good it was a little hard for me to get into it first I was like I'm not really sure if I like this but it is interesting because I like vampires so I think I would read hm. it again that weird sense where I'm not quite sure if I like it or not yet
2: to me this reminded me a lot of like an episode of True Blood in mm-hmm. Tone yeah I think the artist has a better, I don't know if this makes sense, but in their mind, they're a pretty good artist. They know how to frame shots, they know how to establish like dynamic tension and, and all of that. But their actual hand as an artist maybe isn't quite up to that par. You can tell they understand what they're doing. I just am not a fan of the actual art, but the coloring does really well to set the mood of the scenes, which is really what colorists should do. Very similar to the way that Moonshine does. And then you get really strong blues at night and oranges during the day. For a vampire book, you want to have that distinction. So, you know, I liked it. I think this also maybe is very similar to like American Vampire. If you read that book and liked it, it's kind of similar in tone. Although American Vampire is a lot better. I think this one, it's not particularly good or bad. How much you're going to like it depends on how much you like hillbillies, Texas, and vampires. (laughs) If you like those things, it's going to be pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) if you couldn't give two shits about it, you're not gonna like this. So I think it comes down to objectively, I think it's pretty middle of the road, maybe a little better than middle of the road, but your taste will tell you whether you like it or not. One thing I did like about the writing is I feel like you are in a fully realized world. Like he hasn't made the mistakes some writers do are trying to overly explain everything, but you have a sense of depth and history to everything that's going on. That I'm looking forward to seeing how it kind of plays out. You know, I think we're seeing part of a more realized world.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. This doesn't feel like a cardboard cutout town it seems like thought out what he wanted to say about this. And it's probably given that it has to do with his father's own history. Very good at portraying that. So that's one thing I definitely liked about this.
0: I really like the angles in certain panels like when they're first entering the titty bar there's like a nice kind of like overhead but almost like three quarter shot. The different yeah. way that they've laid out the panels with at the different angles makes it really interesting. And
1: Well let's rate this bad boy up. I'm going to give it three and a half back when Texas was spelled with a J.
0: Give it a two and a half just like their mother.
2: I will give it three handlebar mustaches. I'm flying us over to Superman for Superman number 21 from DC Comics Black Dawn chapter 2 written by Patrick Leeson and Peter J. Tomasi, pencils by Patrick Leeson, inks by Mick J., Joel Prado, and Ray McCarthy, and colors by John Calise. So, this one is the continuing story of the trouble around the Kent farm and the weird investigations that Batman is doing and trying to figure out why Superboy is not as powerful as he should be. There's a lot of things I like in this book. I always enjoy the kind of bickering and interplay between Damien and Superboy. I think that those two characters work so well together. They're just like distilled miniaturized versions of Batman and Superman. You find out a little more, they're not in Kansas, but the ideal farm little world that they're in, you find out some darker stuff that's going on. Like the Wilfred Brimley neighbor that we've uh, talked about before <laughs> who delivers the milk to them <laughs> that has this almost like venom symbiote in it. You find him and he turns to be like creepy as fuck. Like there's actually a pretty cool scene where he ends up talking to Crypto outside and like he's talking to him and Crypto's eyes start glowing, which is weird. So I think that he must have some kind of control over animals, which is interesting. And then you start finding out that kind of dark, shadowy, mysterious figure is not happy with what Superman is doing, that he's meddling kind of in his plan. So he decides that he's going to kind of distract Superman. And I don't know if you guys remember way back at the beginning of the Superman run, when he was trying to teach his son how to use his powers, there was this radioactive kraken that was attacking subs up in the Arctic that they went and fought. They bring that back to the county fair and they're battling and Superman doesn't want to really hurt it because it's not evil, it's just an animal. So he's trying to hold back and deal with it and there's some kind of cool scenes of interplay between the kids being told to like stay back and let Superman handle this and then there's a moment where because Superman is kind of holding back that the Kraken actually starts hurting people like knocking down buildings and smashing people with tentacles and actually kind of beating the crap out of Superman and that's when Superboy loses his shit and rips out with his heat vision and kills that thing burns it and destroys it and Superman's really upset with that the part that's interesting is Superboy is kind of asking his dad maybe the way we've been doing things isn't the right way to do it when we hold back like this people get hurt and then there's a really cool panel where superman tells him that's fear that you're listening to when people let fear take control of them we're so powerful that not only will the fear change us but we'll change the world so you have to be very careful with it so you kind of see superboy caught between maybe more like a batman ethos and a superman ethos which is interesting. I mean, it's not resolved here, but it's setting up some of that conflict and growth. And then you get the little girl that he's hanging around with. They ride bikes together and they climb trees and do normal 10-year-old stuff. And it gets really creepy because this girl also has powers where she's able to, almost like Darth Vader, force choke people. She's knocking Superboy down and she's strangling Damian Wayne. And she's telling him that you're so afraid that you don't know how to use your powers, but daddy and I are going to keep you safe. And it's creepy as fuck she looks so sweet and innocent and then she starts using her powers and it's not so innocent anymore and you find out that there's dead man has like this swamp area that the kids have gone into in previous issues and superman thinks that that may be related to what's going on so he goes to dead man's swamp which is nearby and it's really awesome because it's totally a gothic almost black and white panels of like the old mansion and the creepy swamp and then superman is standing there in his really muted tone the artwork there is really good and then he enters into the that was one
0: of my favorite
2: the door like opens and then he enters into it and it closes behind him it was pretty cool i enjoyed it i like superman i like the way they write this superman i've always enjoyed the interplay between the two super sons and we'll get to super sons a little bit later but i like that they're evolving the little kid from first of all idolizing his father and now starting to maybe question how things should be done so is he going to evolve past the way superman does stuff is he gonna realize superman is right i think that it sets up some interesting tension.
0: I think it's cute that John was sleeping with the action figure of his dad which is just kind of strange.
2: Oh he's having the dream where he's like up up and away. I also liked when he tried to wake
0: Damien up in the morning. <laughs> Rise and shine early bring us to work. Like,
2: <sighs> Never wake me up this early.
0: I think I like this just because there's a lot of super sons in it. I can't really care two shits about Superman but give me them super sons and I'm like I'm in. The Wilford Brimley man. Fuck. Like there's just something wrong about when they turn Die little beef. old people into like something creepy. It just is so unsettling to me, and the little girl too. you get that children in the corn vibe,
2: especially like the way that they draw her. There, she's so relaxed when she's strangling them. So I will give this four cryptos.
0: I gave it. Three and a half. Colin Yegarth is that fake name they give Damien.
2: So on to something completely different.
0: Sex criminals number eighteen. We're going for the Chip Double Dip this week. Image Comics, written by Matt Fraction and art by Chip Zdarsky. John is still having issues with seeing that red room, and in that red room now is Kegelface. and so he seems quite distracted. And then he starts bringing home—you don't really see sex toys or lingerie or both, something in that range—but he keeps bringing back. That Susie back gifts and at first she's like okay but apparently it ends up being like a thing it's like all the time and he's always going is that okay she's playing along but then eventually she starts wondering am I not good enough does he need these things to be satisfied and pleased with me at one point she shows them to her best friend
1: I'm pretty sure that they're like sparkly butt plugs
0: they don't show you it's weird they open the drawer it's kind of like the glowing briefcase in Pulp Fiction you yeah gotta, they're looking at something
2: I think they're smart to allow your mind to picture what it is he's bringing home to her
0: it makes it more fun yeah later on we see jasmine saint cocaine unpacking her old stuff there's snake looking dildos (laughs)
2: like anaconda it's gigantic dude that one is huge when you have to throw it over your shoulder and it drapes across the entire couch yeah
0: (laughs) clearly they have no problems drawing the dildos or other sex toys so the fact that it's your imagination it's fun and it's very clever she's trying to get money since she got fired so she starts saying that she'll appear like a porn convention signing and man that panel where she's showing the sign if you look all over and zoom in there was just oh that is hilarious, hilarious stuff hidden in the artwork good job chip $20 for a signing don't touch me she is not having it but she needs the barrage of creepy things that people say to her and how she fixes herself up to look that porn look again well
1: it's like creepy shit happens at cons anyway I mean I've heard the stories a million times from all my female friends and stuff it's like pretty much creepy shit happens yeah. at con- but then it's like you bring in a porn con which I've never been to but I can only uh, fucking imagine
0: So that panel is the best panel in the whole book. Seriously. With her best friend and the gynecologist, he takes over like her box of stuff that he left at their house after they broke up and they have a kind of reconciliation. So that was nice to come back to that. Lots of different weird experiences surrounding the porn convention. There's some serious miscommunication going on between John and Susie. You can see that she has that feeling that something's wrong. She's trying to talk to her and he feels like he's caught and then he's like, oh, she doesn't know. And he's not telling her and he realized he's a lying sack of shit and he should tell her but he's not then it goes meanwhile last issue issue it's back to them sleeping and then they're getting jumped by the weird giant dick simulcrum things they're asking why they're being followed and then it ends with that again like two issues in a row where it ends with those little cock goblins
2: (laughs) it kind of reminded me of (laughs) the south park issue where they're going to reveal who cartman's mom is and they keep giving you another issue instead
0: i definitely think the porn con stole the issue of course the letter daddies are great always read the letter daddies
1: for as goofy as this issue was they're good at capturing these emotional moments and making them seem real. The whole uncomfortableness that people have when it comes to discussing their king, how sometimes that can go wrong, lack of communication. I think that's kind of what this issue could be summed up as, is the lack of communication issue.
0: Their conversations are so... So realistic. Like, I love the dialogue and the flow and this, the authenticity of relationships that they express in these comics are just phenomenally done. Like, I think it's the best character study of actual dating things yeah. in this weird, overblown, sexualized world. As
2: ridiculous as the book is, I think it is the most emotionally honest about relationships that people have, both, you know, sexual and non sexual ones as well.
0: I'm gonna give it four, don't be weird.
1: I'm gonna give it four, the king of interracial. DP on pool tables because in porn it gets that specific.
0: <laughs> I liked it. I
2: thought that the way they moved the plot forward was a little confusing the way they bookended it. thing that's bothering John. Yeah, I wasn't too crazy about that part. I will give it three and a half The Things You Find in the Bottom of Sock
0: Drawers. Oh yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> nice. All right, Rory. On to something else strange.
1: All righty. We got Doctor Strange number 19 Marvel Comics. The Power of Strange Compels You. Written by Jason Aaron. Pencils by Chris Bacalo. Inks by John Livesey, Victor Olblaza, Alve, Jaime Mendoza, Tim Townsend, Wayne Falker. Colors by Chris Bacalo. That team of six people makes this shit look fucking clean as fuck, that's for sure. They said that
0: this is coming near the end, where we're going to see them on this series, and I'm going to be kind of sad. I think the next issue is the last issue. I love Bacalo's artwork on this run. It's amazing. (laughs) It's
2: been one of the best runs in comics in a long-ass time. Marvel had to ramp up for Doctor Strange. Strange, and now there's no Doctor Strange movie coming out so they gotta move their prime talent on to setting up for whatever
1: next. So happens with this one Doctor Strange is taking on Mr. Misery who is possessing Wong and he's trying to get him out of it and so Mr. Misery is totally fucking with him searching through Wong's memory to try and find the worst possible shit he could say to him and so he tells him how Wong loves him like a father loves a son how he's devoted his entire life to him and when he dies his line dies with him and he still loves you. Doctor Strange plays a, a good trick on it, which is he's figured it out Mr. Misery is formed from his pain. And so he starts burning himself with one of his wands in order to draw misery to him. What happens is that in order to finish it up, he actually tells Wong that he doesn't love him and that he doesn't love anybody, and he can't because to him, people are just things and they have to be, and and that love is for children and poets and fools. That actually draws misery into him and he like absorbs it into himself and wong is conscious again he also has a scene where he's washing his face in the sinks like never stop punching never stop hurting never stop so he's torturing himself keep misery in him and so he's treating wong breakfast in the morning and tells him that he doesn't want him cooking for breakfast until he's recovered he also in the beginning he has this thing where he eats this worm looking stuff these noodles that look horrible and are disgusting and that's what he's having for breakfast it's kind of an interesting turnaround but then right after that off the beaten path underneath there's you see the that misery is actually still around. I thought this was really good.
2: Jason Aaron does a really good job with understanding what the really painful things are. That love is the thing that can hurt you the most. Where Strange is trying to inflict pain on himself to pull him out, not only is he burning himself with that wand, he's also saying things that are hurtful. That is both the physical pain and the emotional pain that draws misery back to him. And there's all kinds of zany, madcap adventures in the house to balance out some of that more serious stuff. And you get your kind of classic, creepy-ass Doctor Strange images.
0: They do a nice job of throwing in the throwback kind of imagery, but with a modern cake that makes Doctor Strange Doctor Strange. The weird, psychedelic, twisty things. The mad- Madcap race through the house that is is full of just weird shit. That definitely harkens back to like the '70s esque era looking kind of Doctor Strange, but without being too overt to it. But it definitely has that nod that gives it that Doctor Strange feel. It has lots of layers. It pulls into that emotional and psychological hurt, and you have to think about it. And I like that it makes you think, it draws you into it, thinking more emotionally about something. Where sometimes comic books typically punch, pow, zoom. <laughs> I like the ones that go a little bit deeper. It's been a very emotional week yeah. in comics. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I'm still very pleased with this series and this run. Me too. I'll be sad to see it go. I can't wait for it on Definitely. trade because I want to have it.
2: I want the deluxe hardcover. Bound and foil. Yeah. Yeah. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> it deserves the best treatment they can give. I hope they do. I hope they do it justice. They should have enough time to get something ready by Christmas, so I'm
1: hoping. Alrighty. So are we ready to rate it up? I've been loving it. I'm going to give it five murdered refrigerators.
0: I'm going to give it four and three quarters. I've been going about this all wrong.
2: Uh, I will give it four and a half, the three most hurtful words a person can ever hear.
1: All right, next, Ryan, bring back them Super Sons.
2: So we are not done with Damian and Jonathan. So Super Sons is continuing their fight against the Amazo virus. And this issue kind of answers some of the bigger plot stuff that's going on. So, if you love seeing the two of them bicker together and learn how to work together as a team. And I do. And I do too. You didn't get enough of it in Superman? This one is them center stage doing their thing. Last issue, we had had a part where the opposite parents are kind of watching the two kids. We weren't sure if those were really the parents or if those were amazo robots. But they are amazo robots that they have to end up fighting, which is kind of cool that you get to see them fight the robots there. There's that girl. in the woods and you start having a lot of these puzzle pieces fall into place and what you find out is the girl explains that the amazovirus infected a whole bunch of people and gave them superpowers 97% of the people either died or the powers went away but the remaining 3% of people that were affected that's her family and her brother the main power that he had was he can duplicate himself he can make robot copies of himself which I'm not sure what power that is he's copying but but if that's his power he can duplicate the robots and make them change shape so that TV stuff that we've been seeing that we weren't able to figure out where it is. He's making these robots of his family and killing them to kind of act out these dark fantasies that he's having. As you find out, as he splits his brain, he starts going more and more insane. But he was never that nice to begin with. But as he starts splitting his consciousness into all these different robots, that it's driving him crazy. And there's this kind of cool part where the kids are getting their asses handed to them by the Batman and Superman robots, and the girl tells the robots, put the those boys down. There's actually a really cool panel where she's gesturing like it's really well done like body language in that panel. And you find out that she has the ability to control machines and then they destroy those robots. But those robots reform into Superboy and Damian clones, which I do have to question why the Amazovirus is copying Batman and Damian because they have no superpowers, right? So if you can duplicate the powers you've seen, you're not duplicating anything with Batman but it works. It's just kind of a little quibble that I have with it that's maybe not the best power to duplicate. So you find out that the girl is actually not the girl. She's actually one of the robots that the boy has made, but she managed to split off and escape from the murder scene. So she's trying to fight his control. And as she gets closer to him, he can take her over again, but she's able to fight it off. And there's actually some really cool panels where she is using her powers and then also fighting against her brother. And then you get some nice little interplay where they're arguing about whether they should go to the Justice League or not and Damien is like I'm the world's greatest superhero I can solve this problem Damien thinks they should be handling this themselves and Jonathan wants to go to the rest of the league and things start getting kind of out of hand when a whole army of their clones show up and that they have to fight and Damien has like a thing where he says well maybe I was wrong maybe we should have went to our parents that's when they start fighting the army of robots but there's so many of them the last pan- you basically get is them being dragged down into a pit of the robots. If you've seen the Battle of the Bastards episode of Game of Thrones where they have people emerging from the piles of bodies in the battle, that's what that shot is, except it's in reverse. I like the way that the art looks. It very much fits the style of this book. The writing is funny. The plot line is interesting. I do wish that Superman and Super Sons came out on different weeks though, because they are very similar books. Mm I feel like they're competing with each other for that same market. I still enjoy both of them very much.
0: I'm just a little confused from when Super Suns first started. It showed them running from robots of themselves at the beginning. And I remember I was talking, going, oh, were those just droids, things that Damien created to test them? But these look so similar. Well, it's looping around.
2: Yeah. To that part.
0: but they led from that to LexCore. And from LexCore, they got the information and came here, right?
2: No. If you go back and look at it, you'll see there's panels that are saying two weeks ago or whatever, and then you're in Lex
0: Corp. has, like, a lot of my favorite when they're fighting, which I really enjoy. And I like that sometimes they even know that they play up their bickering, so then they kind of get that cloud of, you know, hands and fists, and then they jump out of it as an attack. I think that's also really clever of them, because, you know, they clearly do bicker like brothers and kids, but then they're also kind of smart enough that they use it to their advantage. Typical Super Sons issue to me.
2: I agree. I would say that the Super Sons has pretty much one note that it does, but I happen to like that note very much, so... Okay kind of where I'm at, too. I'm gonna give it four names, dummy.
0: I'm gonna give it three. Your father's a psychopath. Even my mom says so.
2: So we're also going into an event book over at DC, which is Batman number 21, DC Comics, The Button Part 1, written by Tom King, pencils and inks by Jason Fabook, colors by Brad Anderson. This one's actually really, really cool. This is definitely one of my favorite issues this week's. This one is the story of the Watchmen Button and how it's coming into the DC universe, and this is a Flash Batman crossover. So it starts out with a hockey game, and this is probably the most Batman hockey I've seen in a comic book in a while. (laughs) It goes on for a couple pages. So what you have is Saturn Girl, who's from the 31st century. She remembers this game as being very important and she's watching it while she's in Arkham Asylum and she's screaming that they're gonna kill each other because she recognizes what this is and that she can't stop. I think if she stops it, you know, she's gonna affect the flow of history and she's also locked away in Arkham, so she can't do anything. And then you get this badass panel of Batman watching it on like bat screen with all of these screens around him that are the Watchman button. So Batman is doing this thing where you take like a quarter and kind of like roll it between your fingers and knuckles. And he's doing that with the Watchman button, kind of thinking about it and trying to figure out what it is. And he puts it down on the table next to the mask from the Psycho Pirate. And there's this little bolt of lightning that shoots out between them. And then you get an image of the kind of alternate reality Batman, where Batman is Bruce's father from the previous dimension, where his mother is the Joker and his father is the Batman. Just for a second, where he gets to see that. And he realizes, that Bolt of Lightning has ripped a hole in the space-time continuum that it's part of the speed force, he thinks. So he calls Barry to come and check it out to start working on it, and Barry Allen says he'll be there in a minute. He's like across town and fighting a bunch of samurai. (laughs) You know, so it'll take him a minute to get there. And one thing that's kind of a running gag with Flash is the Flash is the fastest man in the world but he's always late for things, right? And that becomes very important in this. This is where it switches to some brilliant Tom King storytelling here, where you get all these little panels with every second while batman is waiting for the flash
0: to arrive that was a nice touch
2: yeah it was awesome so from the speed force the reverse flash comes out and starts kicking the shit out of batman and he's just punching him just repeatedly batman's kind of just getting his beating because i think he's just waiting for the flash to show up and he knows he can't really go toe-to-toe with the reverse flash but he knows he only needs to last a minute and then barry will be there and then there's a part where the reverse flash finds the letter that bruce has from his dad and tears it up and that's when bruce is like not exactly loses his shit
0: oh hell no now
2: there's the actual fight and the reverse flash is like, what are you going to do when I vibrate this fast using the speed force? Nothing can touch me. And that's when Batman being the world's greatest detective is like, yeah, you're right, but you have to have something that isn't vibrating so you can not fall through the world so that you can stand on things. And that's when he takes his batarang and like shoves it through his foot, which is awesome (laughs) to see Batman turn it around like that. And then they start fighting and it's an actual much fairer fight. But in the end, Batman doesn't have superpowers here and That's where you get the part where Reverse Flash tells him, you know you can't win. And he tells him, I don't need to win. I just need to last another 11 seconds for Barry to arrive. And then you get to the 01 panel and you're like, oh. Now Barry's going to arrive, but he doesn't because he's late and Batman has the, hmm, overtime. And that's when the reverse flash punches him and fucks him up. And he picks up the watchman button that he's looking at and it zaps him away in this blue flash of light. And then he flashes back like a second later and he's been totally fucked up and burned by radiation, which I mean, very clearly to me, that's Dr. Manhattan uh-huh. that's done that to him. This charred and burned half skeleton. And he says that he saw God, he saw the face of God. and then. Barry Harry arrives, and he's like, oh, sorry, I'm late, Batman. I stopped the hockey game to try and help. So he's just a few seconds late, and he comes into the Batcave, and they're both lying on the floor, totally fucked up. I'm enjoying the button. I think it's really, really well done.
0: I'm thinking reverse flash, not okay. Batman, maybe okay. <laughs> Half of his body is a charred skeleton.
2: He definitely got exposed to Dr. Manhattan's radiation.
0: Yo.
1: That's not good. I was a little confused on this one just because I'm I'm not really up on my Flash mythology. So I was like, what the fuck is going on?
2: (laughs) Well, so do you know who the reverse Flash is or like you know nothing about it? It's the antithesis of the Flash. It's another side of the Speed Force. Gotcha. Okay. Bad guy version. Yeah, bad guy version of the Flash is really the Cliff Notes version of it. Who was dead and was actually killed by Batman's father. So when you see Batman's father get brought back for a split second by the Watchmen button, that's what brings back the reverse Flash also. Oh,
1: gotcha. And I think
2: what they're saying is the Flash has always been able to navigate between multiverses. That's how a lot of the crises get resolved. So I think that they're saying the speed force is this conduit that's pulling the Watchmen universe into the DC universe. Gotcha. The art on this was really badass too. Yeah, Mm -hmm. phenomenal.
0: The fight, the punches were like brutal looking. They were handed well done. I love the use of the seconds with the smaller panels. That was cool. That was my favorite part. I love
2: the way that Tom King can tell you a story that would be interesting on its own, but the way he frames the story makes it way, way more interesting. He either does like those letters that he's writing back and forth between people that you find the reveal for who's writing the letter. And in this case, he frames a fight that occurs in a very short amount of time, but every second matters that they're able to convey that really
0: well. Agreed. Go, go, Tom King. Everything else was still good. Even with my, I want to say like juvenile mid-school range knowledge of the Flash. I was like, okay. I didn't know who the chick was. I thought she was just some random prisoner. So you gave me a little bit of tidbit there. I didn't know. That's Saturn Girl. She's part of the Legion of Superheroes.
2: She came back to meet with Superman, but Superman was dead when she got here. So she's kind of stuck in time. If you remember in Suicide Squad, when we were reading about Amanda Waller Uh putting through that thing, that version of like Green Lantern, who was that chick with the floating green eyeball. Uh She's here looking for Saturn Girl.
0: Man, that's a bummer. You travel through time or through a multiverse and then the thing you came here for is not even there? Sucks to be you.
2: Yeah, she's not having a good time. Like, man, that's a big trip for nothing. I (laughs) will give this four and a half I saw God.
1: I'm going to give this four and a half I'm not the hero of this story.
0: I gave it four 11 seconds. Guardians of the Galaxy, Dream On, number one, written by Mark Summerac, Pencils and Inks by Andrea DeVito, and colors by Laura Villari. Now, this book, it starts off, you're like, what the fuck? Frickin Kenny G Drax with some weird 80s posing Draxophone. <laughs> wow.
1: I was thinking the sexy sax man from Lost Boys.
0: That would work as well. I think I was trying to block that idea, but now that you mention it, yeah, totally. And you're just like, what the hell's going on? You know something's not right. It starts off also showing that he defeated Thanos and Thanos was like, oh, it had to be you. And then he got to move on and lead the life he always wanted, which apparently was being the sexy sax man. Now, that alone is weird. Then Gamora shows up and at first you think she's gonna be like a weird groupie. Oh, God knows. I don't want to see that that's not gonna work. But you find out that she realizes this is a dream and she's willing to take him out of this weird reality. And at some point, he also kind of realizes that something's not quite right. That reminded me a
2: lot of, in Total Recall, where they go into his and tell him it's a dream that he needs to come out of it. That's what that scene reminded me of.
0: And it's funny because he has his steady knives in his sax case, very much El Mariachi style. (laughs) So then they start jumping into each of the Guardians' dreams. And so you get this nice little sequence. I personally found Peter's the best. and It was the most touching and I thought, great. So he's there and his dream is so cute. It's him having a picnic with his mom and dad, but his dad's not Jason bastard emperor of Spartax, he's like oh, a nice guy but just the fact that it's his mom you're like that is so Peter that is so perfect and it's even funny because they even make a comment like oh we thought you would just be like in a den of a neck no what the perfect world for Peter is him being reunited with his mom and I love that that was really sweet and touching now on the flip side then you get freaking Rocket
1: <laughs> Rocket's Conan
2: throne
0: the sexy cat girls and the piles of gold Groot was just hanging out in a jungle Groot is drawn in this very similar to the movie so then when they all decide to wake up it's a very kind of matrixy pod pink ambiotic fluid kind of thing rocket looks yeah, a little worse for wear out of all of them i like he's kind of soaked in goo but what turns out is that they're like in this dream state all their stuff's there but a bounty hunter head cap is a compliance kind of tool prison thing to keep your captives subdued in a way if anyone knows rocket you know he's broken out of all the prison so what better way to make them perfectly happy not trying to break out so it was death's head and weird bounty hunter robot dude yeah they defeat him by putting the things in his head and at first making him think that it didn't work and that he goes on to great riches but really he is in there living his perfect dream and having all this money that was hilarious while they escape so i thought that was a neat twist though there is a brutal scene where he straight up decapitates Groot he's like holding Groot's head (laughs) and shoulders like up above his head and it's not pretty but you know it's Groot but then later on you have little toddler Groot with full-size Groot head running around because he just (laughs) brought (laughs) like little new legs you know me I have to touch on the group aspects they're trying to escape and get to a different ship because they want to be on the other side of the galaxy by the time this guy realizes he's been Hoodwinked and in a dream, and when they're done, they go Rocket, where'd you? And then you know Groot says something, and it goes, What do you mean he's busy? And it's like Rocket rehooked himself back up to the machine. In fact, that like, Groot's covering his face. I'm thinking it's probably like a sexy dream or something, and it's just being like they don't want to watch him do that. And that's the first story. But I actually like they posted an old 1990s version of the Guardians of the Galaxy as the second story, and this is not your Guardian. So if you're not familiar with the old school Guardian the only character you're really gonna recognize is Yondu and this is not your Michael Rooker Yondu this is straight up like he meditates doesn't have a calm in his room the only thing similar is his skin color and his red mohawk and the arrow whistle one it's really smart because I think they're getting a lot of new Guardian readers based on the movies and I think this gives a lot of background and this in particular ties into volume 2 for the movie because this is the first appearance of Taserface and Taserface will be one of the characters in the new movie i like it it's the old throwback i think it gets you a lot of the feels the guardians it's a definitely different take and it's really funny because i'm like i don't remember comics being this hard to read in the 90s when i was reading them (laughs) I almost felt like I was reading slower going through here.
1: Yeah, some definitely were.
0: <laughs> so if you are a New Guardians fan or appreciate the old ones, this is a good little read from the 1990s, and I would suggest you giving it a good look.
1: When I saw the second issue, instantly I was like, <laughs> way dated. Actually, I was like sitting there thinking, thank God comics are not like this anymore. <laughs> I definitely like the main story. The main story I thought was awesome. Super funny. Nice fight scene. The artwork is... So Fucking amazing on this. I wasn't so big on the 90s throwback.
2: Hold my pants. I'm going to shit all over this thing. <laughs>
0: Ah, here we go. So
2: this piece of shit is a subpar Guardians of the Galaxy. It's like when you want a pair of Nikes and your grandma takes you to pay less. Yes, they're shoes and they go on your feet, but it's definitely not the same fucking thing. This issue serves no purpose whatsoever in the larger Guardians of the Galaxy universe. The only reason it exists is to cash in on the movie. And it's, in my opinion, not very well done. It's not horrible. The writing isn't bad. and the art isn't bad, it just is extremely pointless, and I did not like this at all. I was annoyed (laughs) that this exists. If you don't get enough Guardians in Guardians of the Galaxy, Rocket and Groot, Gamora, Star Lord, I guess if you need a fifth Guardians book a month that this little mini-series may be for you, but it's a pretty shitty meal when I'm not hungry, in my opinion.
0: (laughs) I disagree. I thought the artwork was great. I could always use more Guardians. So, And I think it's no different than anything. They do, how many spider people versions are there out there?
1: At least 13 spider people.
0: Fine, give the Guardians fans some love. And Clearly it's not Ryan's demographic, but it's clearly up mine. And I appreciate it, Marvel.
2: I do not. <laughs> That's all I got to say about that. We got to rate it though.
0: <laughs> I'm giving it three, but we're lovable. Who would want to kill us? other than you at the moment.
1: I think uh, I'm going to give it three and a half enormous life-changing paychecks. I enjoyed it.
2: I am going to give it one and three quarters. Save your money and upgrade to a 3D ticket for Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I'm going to take us over to another part of the Marvel Universe for Nick Fury number one from Marvel Comics. Written by James Robinson. Pencils by Aiko. I don't know how you say that name, but that's what I'm going with. Inks by Hugo Petrus. Colors by Rachel Rosenberg. So, this This is the story of Nick Fury Jr. Who's the African-American version of Nick Fury. He's got the cybernetic eye patch. This is an extended James Bond opening sequence really is what this is. So if you like seeing people get karate chopped in volcano layers and hijinks at a casino and chases on jet skis, people in
1: sharks, laser beams,
2: girls in mini skirts, dancing like in a go-go cage,
0: give us something, leave us something to say.
2: (laughs) If you like that, (laughs) (laughs) kind of shit. This book is, it's pretty fun. I don't think there's very much substance to it, but it does have kind of an undeniable sense of fun. The plot summary is real simple. Nick Fury is infiltrating a Hydra base that's a casino and there's hijinks and sexy interplay with him and the James Bond villainess that he's fighting. And they have a bunch of adventures and chases and explosions. It's all right. It's really hard to describe the plot because there's not much there. It's really more about the feeling of it. The art's pretty decent, very colorful. It was not bad. What'd you guys think of it?
1: It's a James Bond plot gone on fucking super steroids. The artwork's good. It is what it is. There's really not much substance to it is what I didn't like about it. It's just like, this doesn't hook me into the comic at all. (laughs) Like, make me want to read the next one.
0: I don't know. I was pleasantly surprised. I was not looking forward to this, and then I'm like, oh my god, I love this artwork. Oh my god, it's so kitschy. Oh my god, it's James Bond. This is fun. I thought it was fun. I really liked it. I thought it was cute. I really liked the artwork. I like the villainous and I love the panels of the different bubbles and movement. I thought it was really well done and it was not what I was expecting. I was expecting something completely different.
2: It's like really tasty gum. It tastes hella good, but you're never going to get full eating
0: this. But she has sweet green lipstick. I mean, <laughs> come on. It's true.
2: It's very psychedelic, like 60s
0: color palette. Yes, it is very 60s.
2: Yes. This yeah. totally feels like a James Bond Batman TV series crossover. There's <laughs> yachts leaping over each other. There's all kinds of craziness in this. It is really fun. I just I don't know if it's enough to compel me to read anymore. I wouldn't be mad if I ever had to read one again, but I don't have any desire to read one again. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm gonna give it three, fly away.
1: Oh, you're a shitload nicer than I am. I'm gonna give it a uh, one and a half. Oh, yeah. This is not compelling. This has nothing in it and it doesn't make me want to go for the next one.
0: I gave it three and a half. Dare to dream, baby.
2: Alright, speaking of dreams.
1: Alright, we have Secret Empire number zero. Marvel Comics, written by Nick Spencer. Prologue art by Rod Reese. Uh, main art by Daniel Acuna. So, this is the event we've all been waiting for. You see on this one steve rogers ends up meeting up in like a prequel in 1945 japan and put the kraken takes him to this pool where it all like began and stuff the source of hydra's power they show him this pool that shows him that the allies are working on their own cosmic cube and how they're going to use it to change reality and change it so that they win instead of hydra how they're going to use it at any moment and how he needs to keep strong and keep on going and then all of a sudden there's like this big rumbling and you know they're like oh it begins and they dunk him in this pool It's supposed to protect him from the use of this cosmic cube. So then we see Steve later on in the future and he's the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. now and he's on one of the helicarriers so what happens is the invasion's happening. Chitauri invasion fleet has finally arrived and so of course all the badasses go up and go to fight them outside of Earth and then there's also a defense force on the ground and everybody's ready. You find out that the day before a HYDRA operative had suicide bombed the shield, the planetary defense shield and so everybody's fighting trying to keep everything going. But then all the angry supervillains that were trapped in Pleasant Hill end up showing up in New York City and causing havoc there where the defenders are there to defend against that kind of stuff. And then they talk about earlier in the book how they lost contact with one of their helicarriers they'd sent to over to Sokovia because of their nuclear weaponry and stuff. So what happens is there's this huge wave and everybody's getting overran by the Chitari. You have Iron Man and Heart working on the shield, and they're trying to repair it, and there's, like, this big battle scene, and Quasar gets, like, eaten by some, like, giant...
2: One of the ships.
1: And then Captain America's like, I need that shield! Just everybody's losing all of a sudden, and then down on earth nitro basically blows up in the middle of new york city makes this huge blast everything's going to shit the secretary of defense contacts captain america says the united states is now like they're moving the president and she's going to be moving too and it, now they're giving him as the director of shield authority to use the united states military and basically everything's in his control earth is on its last legs and so then all of a sudden tony and and Riri are working on the shield, and all of a sudden, it just happens to start back up out of nowhere. And so the shield starts up, everything's going good, the chitari are like just running into the shield kind of like blindly, and it's destroying most of them, and this is when Cap makes his play as the Hydra members. I'm sorry, I missed the one most important event, which is the Helicarrier that they lost contact with all of a sudden comes out and slams into the one that Cap and Sharon are on, and then these Hydra forces are coming in and they're using Dr. Faustus to brainwash the ship and so they're just like taking over and they're looking really bad and then Cap comes out and tells the Kraken leadership to hold their fire and this is when he comes out and reveals that he's actually a member of HYDRA and he's contacted by Carol who's like injured people and we need a medical backed out and he busts out this badass speech because she's like safe, everything's clear and he's like actually there's not, there's going to be another way and then another, and each coming wave will be in more ra- rapid succession, they're not going to stop until they find their queen. And Carol's, like, confused, and he tells them how a Soviet scientist had figured out that harvesting a Chitari queen would bring an invasion fleet to Earth, and then in his later years, he-, he built the technology for the shield, which is what they took. And he's like, I'm doing exactly what you would do. You should be so proud of your work here. You built the shield to wall off the world from its greatest threats, and now you're on the other side of it. And now that you on the other side of it you have and he shuts off the, the calm so that was just an awesome scene and then baron zemo is outside of manhattan with blackout who basically is the blackout the one that brings the dark realm dark force dimension all of a sudden New York is covered in the Dark Force dimension. Iron Man is trying to get whoever's left to assemble and come out and kick some ass. And you end with this awesome ass scene of the helicarriers which are now HYDRA helicarriers uh, flying over the White House. So, what'd you guys think of this one?
2: I thought this was amazing. I know a lot of people have problems with this Captain America's turn to HYDRA. And really what I have to say to that is, this has been building for a while. This didn't come out of nowhere. This has been going on since at least Pleasant Hill, Civil War II, all of Captain America's run, and finally culminating in this. Hydra and Captain America are not the heroes of this story. They are the vilest of villains in this. And I think people are assuming that they're the protagonists of this and that people are offended by that. And that is absolutely not the case. Here. When Cap betrays the Marvel Universe, you get a gut punch of betrayal as people realize what's happening. Like he has sh- Sharon, his you know, love throughout all of time, being dragged away to like a holding cell. You have just so many epic scenes here of these fights that are going on. The art on this is amazing. The writing is brilliant. When Cap begins revealing his plan, when I see a supervillain reveal his plan, I don't want to think it's dumb and has obvious poles in it. I want to be blown away. I want to be like going, oh shit. Every phase of it that unfolds is so perfect that he's planned out for decades. They talk about that he's a tactical genius. Genius, and now he's been freed from mercy and compassion to execute his plan. And when he does, it is horrifying to watch these pieces fall into place. And I think it's setting up yes. a really awesome event that you've got the people in space. You've got the people in the Darkholm, New York City. You've got the people on the outside. And you've got the people on the outside converging on DC where Miles and Captain America are going to have their throwdown. So I love this. I thought this was fantastic. I think people should definitely read this for yourself and decide if it's worthy or not. I think it does do some troubling things, but I think that it has merit to it in the way that it treats them. Some people have said this is a pro-fascist or Trump, if you're opposed to him, that this is tying into his worldview. And I think this is the exact opposite, that this is showing you those things with what their plans really are and the horror that would happen if that takes place. So I love this. I cannot praise this higher. So that's my opinion.
0: So I've been arguing with people about this on different threads, on different places all week.
2: That's what the internet's for. <laughs> Argue about comics online.
0: I think because of that, it left kind of a sad taste in my mouth. I wasn't ready to read this yet. I was just kind of really just kind of burned by the topic. I was just kind of done with it. So I didn't really like it. really like the idea of reading it more said this before when we covered the Steve Rogers series when this all started coming out, where I get people's knee-jerk reaction to what happened. I understand why you don't like it. Jewish people created the character, this is an affront to them by changing it. But I keep reiterating that it is not Steve Rogers. It is not Cap at all. The fact that he's been completely rewritten, there's nothing else there of him it's not really him. The idea that you're ruining this concept really is sticking in people's craws and it's super offended. Like, why would I never give him my money? This is horrible. Like, So so many people, I've heard people just like, I'm straight up not reading anything Marvel's done.
2: Which is total bullshit because if they had been reading what Marvel actually puts out, they would know what's going on. Yeah. And people who act surprised and shocked at this clearly do not fucking
0: read comics. Agreed. Yeah, and I've been saying that. I mean, you've obviously, you and me have been on some of the same thread, and we've been talking. really gets me is people are reacting to the clickbait. There's these really articles that are super, like, blowing it out of proportion, and it's driving people up who... Some of them I know are actually established comic book readers. So them, I actually take the time to actually talk to them. But there's people who I'm like, you know of the characters, but you don't really read comics. So those people really get me because some of them are the, those people are loud. And I'm like, when was the last time you actually bought a comic?
1: Fascism is it's kind of a very typical story piece, though. I mean, really, when it comes down to it, it's like, I mean, how many video games, how many movies, how many books have had some sort of fascist yeah. plot involved? I mean, classic books involved fascism so to dismiss it oh as though he's some sort of sympathizer unless i had something really specific i would think that was unfair and uncalled for it's telling a story people
0: you know so i was trying to talk more in depth to someone about this trying to explain how i saw what was happening you know about how he's completely rewritten it so it's really hard to say that it's actually Cap doing these things because it's not him and to me what it is is like you're fighting this enemy this epic story of these characters that we know and their ultimate villain versus the hero and the villain has in one sense, one. He has taken everything that this represents the hero this person everything that they hold dear are all of their ideals all of their ethics everything that they possibly stand for their identity it is a complete mindfuck they have taken anything and everything that steve rogers values in his core of him and has stripped it away from him and he doesn't even know it it's not the same as like you dominate someone kill your best friend yeah that sucks and that's hard but they've taken everything from you and for me like the payoff when he finds out what happens to him and he comes back and he's rewritten which is eventually gonna happen he has to deal with that and that's dark that shit is fucking dark and it's not supposed to be an easy read it's not supposed to be comfortable it's not supposed to be happy but that's the story that's the point that's gonna be the payoff at the end yeah this is the night you need to read it and see for yourself
1: and it's all going to get reset in like six months anyway so
2: if you want to have villains they need to actually be villainous if you want to have betrayal they need to actually betray something your stakes and payoff can only be as good as your villain is and they've built this to what I think is a masterful story you know there are probably almost a year and a half of stuff going on here there's at least two or three series I can think of that you need to read before you read this to understand what's going on so it's deep and complex but I think the The payoff is spectacular on this.
1: I love the story. I think this is the culmination of a masterful plot. The artwork I wasn't quite as happy with. At times it's better than others, but it's kind of just not really my thing. So I'm going to give this four and three quarters, and this is the price we paid.
2: I will give this... 5 Freed from Compassion and Mercy. I
0: did not love this as much as you guys, clearly. I'm going to give it 3 Locked Out Carols. So, those were the books we read this week. To check out our other podcasts, Broke Gaming and Cut the Cord, as well as other nerd shenanigans, go check out FourColorNerds.com or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music.
2: On Stitcher. On SoundCloud.
0: And on Podcast Addict. Be sure to rate
2: review and subscribe
0: come back next week for another episode until then keep reading nerds